draw your attention back to the front, if you can grab your seats, and we'll get started in the second half of our morning for our teaching. If you are going into grade three or older, uh, up to, I guess we'll say, middle school age, there are busy bags that you can pick up, and also there are Bibles, regardless of how old you are, there's Bibles available just back there in the back. And these are easy-to-read New International Version Bibles. And um, if you aren't familiar with the Bible, or if you left yours at home, or if you prefer not to use your phone, if you have those capacities, uh, then I encourage you to pick up one of these, and we can follow this along together. Last week, we were treated to a message from a guest speaker. Brent Miller, the pastor of College Drive Church in Lethbridge, Alberta, was with us last Sunday, and he told us the story of a young boy being chosen as king over Israel. And the boy had seven older brothers, and when the prophet Samuel came to his house to anoint the next king, the boy wasn't even there. He was outside looking after the sheep. And this is how we're first introduced to the character of David. He's overlooked, he's forgotten, he's not even in the picture initially in that story. He's the true underdog, so to speak, when it comes to who that next king will be. And the memorable verse, the the most significant verse probably in that passage is the one that that Brent focused on. It's from 1 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. As Samuel the prophet is thinking about who he will be anointing as king, um, he, he sees Eliab, the eldest son, and he thinks that that's who God will choose, and then God tells him that he's wrong. He says, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this statement is not just true for that story. It's not just true for the anointing of the next king. We see that it's a theme throughout the scriptures, and it leads in quite significantly to this next chapter that we're going to follow as we continue our series. It reads like the ultimate underdog story. At the very least, it's the defining underdog story, because this is where we get the phrase David versus Goliath. Now, people who have never gone to church, people who have never picked up a Bible— have an idea of what David versus Goliath means. David is uh, synonymous with being small. A Goliath means the opponent is big. David is unproven. Goliath is a champion. David then is the underdog, and Goliath is the favorite. And as a child, the best representation that, that I could think of as, of the David versus Goliath concept Uh, was one of the popular Nintendo games. My brother and I had the original Nintendo Entertainment System. In fact, I still have it. It's in my home. It's the last video game system I played. It's such a great Nintendo system that I've never needed to purchase a new gaming system. So if anyone has some random games in your home that you want to get rid of, talk to me first because it might be a game I, I don't have. But I can still remember my friends talking about this. This is the late 80s, about Nintendo coming out and how a new game was being released and how the graphics were just incredible, you know, and as you'll see in a few moments, the graphics still are pretty impressive. And, and uh, so this Nintendo came out with a game called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I'm guessing many of us have played this or seen this or have some recollection of what this game was all about. And it, it was kind of released at a pinnacle part 
of, of the 80s because Mike Tyson became a cultural icon. He was a, a young man at the time, and he became uh, the heavy, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He had like four or five titles to his name, and he was in his early 20s. And just as Nintendo was gaining popularity and in a lot of people's homes, they released this game called Punch-Out!, now, most every young boy that I knew uh, recognized that he would have no shot of actually play, fighting Mike Tyson in a ring or landing a punch, but pretty much every single boy that I knew had hope that when he played this video game, he might be able to face Mike Tyson and have kind of a, a surreal experience of thinking that you could beat the reigning champion. And so the, as, as a con- as the person controlling this game, you got to control a character called Little Mac. Now, Little Mac is so small that when you are fighting with Little Mac, if you want to attempt to hit your opponent in the face, you actually have to press the up key because Little Mac will jump up into the air and swing his fist to try to hit his opponent in the face. And it, but there's other clues in this game that tell you that Little Mac is at a severe disadvantage. Uh, another one is his, is his trainer, their doc. You would think that a trainer would have some sort of impact on the game. All Doc does is he pounds his fist during the, the break between the rings, uh, between the rounds, and then he says things like, keep your guard up. You know, not all that helpful as, as Little Mac. And I was thinking about this earlier this week that, that Little Mac, or excuse me, Doc, the trainer, he looks very similar to Carl Winslow of um, Family Matters. I don't know if you see this resemblance here. So it's kind of like you've got, you've got Carl in your corner rooting you on. And if Carl's your trainer, that can only mean that you are Steve Urkel, right? And I don't know if there's any more of a telltale sign that you are an underdog when you realize that you are Steve Urkel. Mike Tyson's punch-out is sort of a David versus Goliath game. A major difference, of course, is that if you lose in the video game, you can just press a button and you can rematch your opponent, or you can press the Nintendo reset button, which as a child was one of the most powerful buttons known to humanity. Or best of all, if you lose, you can just remember this is a video game. This isn't real life. It's not that big of a deal. But David's life wasn't like Nintendo. And our story, our lives, it's not this way either. We have no reset button. We have no way of trying to do it over again. For David, Goliath is a real, literal, physical giant. He's a warrior that needs to be faced. But Goliath is also symbolic of something else that we can all relate to. Goliath represents trouble and conflict and fear. And the story of David and Goliath is an old story, but I hope that you'll be able to see part of your own story in it too. And the story is found in the book of 1 Samuel, which we've been following throughout our summer series, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you did pick up one of those Bibles in the back, it's on page 277. So if you're a little bit unfamiliar with uh, how the Bible is ordered, you can just turn to page 277 and you'll see chapter 17 on the right-hand side. And I'm not going to read through the story because it's a long one with many details, but I certainly hope that you'll either choose to, to read it as you follow along and listen uh, to my account of the story or that you'll read it later on this week. I'm just going to summarize part of the story. So we, we read at the beginning of chapter 17 that the Philistines are gathering their army together. Now, if you haven't heard of the Philistines uh, up to this point, at this point in history, they are Israel's primary enemy. 
They've been feuding back and forth, and throughout 1 Samuel, they're in pretty much every single chapter. It's some sort of war, uh, some sort of problem is going on, and it involves the Philistines. And what we find out here is that, that the Philistines are getting their army ready, and they're up to no good, and so they gather it together, and in response, King Saul, he's the leader of of Israel and of their army as well, he decides, okay, if they're getting their army together, let's get our army together too. And so it just so happens that both of the armies, they gather on opposing hills. So we got the Philistines on one side, we've got the Israelites on the other, and in between is a valley. And the valley is called the Valley of Elah, which sounds like a very beautiful girl's name, doesn't it? So in, in verse four, we meet a man named Goliath. And Goliath comes out of the Philistine camp, and he's described as a champion. If you look at the context of this story and later on what Goliath actually says, he's not just a champion, but he's a representative. He's a representative of the Philistines. Uh, He is the one that is going to approach Israel and say, hey, choose someone to fight against me, and the two of us will decide who the victor is. So he challenges, he provides this this man-to-man combat challenge. And this wasn't really all that unusual back in, back in ancient times. Instead of having every single person in the army fight it out, they would choose a representative from each one, and the two would fight. And the victor, they would take a, the, the army, and they would bring them in, and they would be their, their slaves or their captors, and they would treat them how they would. Um, and so it was kind of an understanding of we'll, we'll do battle this way to, to save some of the lives, uh, but at the same sense, the, the stake is very high because if your representative from your cap lost, you are likely going into captivity thereafter. The problem in the story is, is pretty obvious at first. We find out that Goliath is really big. And depending on what ancient manuscript we look at, uh, he's anywhere from six foot eight up to over nine feet tall. And he's loaded with armor. And as we read his description, which is very detailed, we find out that bronze is his favorite color. Now, Goliath is never described as strong or angry or fierce, but we can tell from his description that he's not built like me. We know he's, he's very large. And if you weigh up all of his armor, it weighs about 125 pounds. And apparently he's able to move in this gear and feel somewhat comfortable doing so. And we know that regardless of his actual height or his strength or his, his abilities as a warrior, the Israelites are terrified of him. They are absolutely fearful of this man. So much so that the Israelite king, Saul, who is supposed to be the leader, he's supposed to be the one that leads Israel out into battle, he's scared too. Now Saul, for what it's worth, he also shops at the big and tall store. He's not a little guy. We read back in uh, chapter, chapter 10 when Saul is first introduced that he's described as a head above all the others. So he is, he's a big guy. And God says to Samuel when he's telling him about Saul who is going to be anointed as king, he says that the king will deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. So King Saul has the size. He has the military experience. He's, he's been uh, very successful in the chapters leading up to this story. He has the title of king. He's got the job description from God. He's the king. And even beyond that, when the people of Israel, when they ask for a king, when they demand God and Samuel for a king, the reason why they want it is because they want their king to lead them out into battle. So Saul has all these things going for him, but he's scared. And so he doesn't do anything. He doesn't meet 
Goliath in the valley of Elah. And so two times a day, we're told in this story, Goliath comes forward into the valley and he delivers a speech. And this speech basically is, is a, uh, it, it's a challenge to Israel. He defies their army and says, pick a man to come and fight me. Let's do this. And Israel doesn't do anything. So in the morning and again in the evening for 40 days, which is Bible talk for a really long time, Goliath is doing this over and over again. That's the, that's the beginning of this story, and it almost sounds like a fairy tale. You kind of get the sense of, we got trouble, what's going to happen? There's a lot of fear. Later on, we'll hear about a reward. And then David enters the scene. Now, his oldest three brothers are part of Saul's army, but David is still the youngest, and he's got the, the chores that the youngest continues to have. He can't shake this nagging responsibility of looking after his father's sheep. And so he's back at home in Bethlehem looking after his father's sheep, but one day his dad gives him a new assignment, and his task is to go to the battlefield, to go to the valley, and check in on his brothers and bring them some, some food to eat. And so early one morning... David leaves, and he arrives at the valley of Elah, and he leaves the food with the keeper of supplies. It almost seems like he knows what he wants to do right away. He drops off the food with the keeper of supplies, and he goes right to the battlefield. He finds his brothers, and he does what his father asked him to do. He checks in on them to see how they're doing. And as he's talking with his brothers, it just so happens that the timing works out that Goliath walks into the valley and he delivers his usual frightful speech, defying Israel's army, asking for a challenger. And David hears him speak. And this is when something different happens. First, David overhears the men in the army talking about a reward. He finds out that the Israelite who defeats Goliath will receive great wealth from King Saul, plus he will get Saul's daughter in marriage, plus his father's family, perhaps most importantly of all these three things, will be tax-exempt. And so there's a, there's a lot of incentive for an Israelite soldier to do something about this. But as David is collecting information, as he's, he asks again, he's trying to figure out exactly, is this, is this what's happening? Like, first of all, we've got this man who's yelling out insults and, and challenging the army, and no one seems to be doing anything about it. And secondly, there's all these rewards that are being promised by the king for this. As he's checking this out, his brothers become angry with him. Uh, we find out that, that his oldest brother, he actually has some pretty harsh words to say towards David. He asks David why he's on the battlefield, and then he accuses him of being conceited and wicked. Now, why does this happen? Why is it recorded in the story? You would think that the youngest, the one back tending the sheep, I mean, how, how much opportunity does he have to be wicked and conceited? But if you think about what's happened so far in this story, it might be true that his brothers have already become jealous at this point. David's brothers actually sound kind of similar to Joseph's brothers in the story of Genesis 37, where they recognize something different in David, and they know that they can't have it. Remember that David has been anointed king. In the previous chapter, Samuel the prophet, he went into the father's house, and he passed by all of the older brothers. Each one was not the one called by God to be king. Plus, David is good looking. 
for whatever reason, it's recorded pretty much every time he's described. So I don't know if the, the other brothers have different genetics or exactly what's happened, but maybe there's a little bit of envy going on there. And he's very likable. We find out that, that he's respected by people. He's a musician as well. He's already been in the king's court playing his harp. And, and so maybe all of these things are contributing to the jealousy of his brothers. And David is now showing himself to be a bit too interested in what's happening on the battlefield. He belongs back back home looking after the sheep, and his brother is not too happy with what's happening. But as they're talking to each other, and, and David acts very much like a younger brother here, doesn't he? He's just kind of like, hey, I, I'm just obeying dad. Like, what difference does it make to you if I'm down here? Like, very much sounds like the younger brother all this talk, all this discussion about rewards and why he's there, this talk seems to go back to, to King Saul, and he hears about it. He hears about uh, some guy here who's, who's doing a little bit of research and finding out what's happening. And so David is called by, by Saul to speak with him. And as David and Saul speak to one another, we begin to see who Israel's true leader is. David's the first one to speak. He's the one recorded as, as being the first one to speak to the king. And it almost sounds like he's trying to comfort the king with his words. He speaks with great confidence. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And then Saul listens to David. And then he tells David pretty frankly that he's not able to go. He tells him based on his own reasons, which are probably close to the reasons we would have as well, uh, whenever we're faced with a problem. Our reasons are based on our perceptions. They're based on what we see. But to be a bit more accurate, our reasons, like Saul's, are actually based on what we think we see. Saul has seen Goliath. He's seen him for many days. And now he's looking at David, this young boy. And presumably he's trying to measure them up. David is small and young. Goliath is big and experienced. And so he tells David that he's not able to go. But his words don't stop David. David gives a compelling speech, and he, he tells him how he's going to approach this Philistine and how he's actually going to kill him. And there's a lot of great drama in this story, but the speeches often get overlooked for, for how much of an insight it gives us to what exactly is going on. So you'll, you'll see this uh, throughout Let's see, right where are we right here in the text? Uh, we're in verse 34 as, as David is, is speaking to Saul. And so basically he says, this is why I'm going to, to fight Goliath. First of all, um, he's a shepherd. He says, and as a shepherd, I faced danger before. He says that when a lion or a bear would come and grab a sheep from the flock and go off with it, that he would actually go after the beast and strike it down. And when that animal would, would turn around on him, he would grab it by the hair and kill it. So this is kind of David's rebuttal. He says, hey, I'm a shepherd. I know what danger is all about, and I've fought off wild beasts before. And he says this statement. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So why does David want to fight the Goliath? Because David has firsthand experience of being delivered from trouble. What can a boy possibly do against a hungry lion or bear 
that wants to take off a sheep for dinner? I think David, David would respond and say, are the odds of a wild animal doing me any harm really all that different than facing a giant in warfare? David doesn't seem to do so. So as odd of an equation as it is for us reading this story, and presumably for Saul as well, David doesn't feel like this is all that weird. He's faced trouble before. He's experienced God's hands of deliverance. To him, Goliath is really no different than a God-defined animal. He will do to Goliath what he's done to those who have threatened his sheep. He will go after them, he will kill them, and the Lord will deliver him once again. And these words of David, they give us pretty much for the first time, a window into his heart. This heart that is famously described as as being a heart after God's own heart, as being motivated by wanting to be obedient to God and wanting to care about the things that God cares about. This is the first story where we see the kind of actions that David will take to defend the holy name of Israel's living God. And he believes that God will deliver him. And what seems to fuel this experience or it seems to, to fuel this motivation for wanting to do it, and this belief is his past experience. God has delivered him from unlikely odds in the past, and so he believes that God will do this again. Growing up in the home that he grew up in as an Israelite uh, boy, maturing into a man, he would have heard the old stories. He would have heard the stories of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and, and the men and women before him of great faith who were able to be used by God to accomplish many things. But even more importantly than hearing those stories, he's lived some of those own stories himself. And all of these stories have something in common. Deliverance comes through the hand of the living God. So, jo- so David, he sees the giants, but he also sees what God can do in the moment. And so Saul t- tells David to go. He tells him to go, and it's really hard to know if Saul shares David's confidence or if he realizes he really has no other options. So he says, go, and the Lord be with you. And it's hard to know if he's saying that with much conviction or if he's saying that as a bit of a mild prayer that David is not defeated. Because the stakes are high, right? I mean, David goes and he doesn't win, and then Israel is basically enslaved to the Philistines. But Saul tells him to go. And he gives Saul his, or Saul gives David his armor, which obviously is not going to fit him based on uh, the differences and and how tall they are. And, and, uh, probably their strength as well. So we have the the king of Israel giving his fighting tools to a young shepherd boy whose name he either can't remember or he doesn't know. And I wonder what people in the Israelite army would have thought as they watched their king, a giant almost himself, uh, giving this young boy his armor. I'm guessing that that, uh, Saul's approval rating hit an all-time low at that point in the story. So David puts on the armor. He puts on the gear and he tries to walk around, uh, but we're told in the story he's not used to the armor, so he takes it off. And from our vantage point, this is, this is insanity. Like, this is complete foolishness, right? This would be like saying, uh, you know what? I'm just going to take off my parachute backpack and then I'll jump out of the plane, right? This is like saying, before I get on the race course, I'll just take off my motorcycle helmet. It's okay. And then I'll, I'll just, you know, go around the corners really sharply. This seems to make no sense whatsoever. But David proves that he's actually not foolish. He actually just has a different strategy. So when he goes to the battlefield, 
he has a different plan. In verse 40, we read that he takes back his shepherd's staff, and then he chooses five smooth stones from the water. He puts the rocks into his shepherd's bag, readies his slings, and then he approaches the Philistine. Now, as David is approaching the valley, we read that the Philistine giant is also coming, and he has his shield bearer as well. His shield bearer is actually out in front of him. And so they come closer to David, and the giant looks at the shepherd boy, and then he despises the shepherd boy. Apparently, he feels insulted that after all of this time, the best opponent that Israel can bring is this young shepherd boy who has no armor with him at all. And so, presumably, he's offended, and he's angry, and he tells David about it. He speaks to him. He curses him by his own gods as they come closer. And in any great feud, there's a good amount of talking, right? So, so Goliath, he, he talks to David, and then David has his rebuttal. But David is the one who calls upon the Lord his God. He says, not only is he going to kill this Philistine, but he says that the Lord is going to save him not by sword, not by spear, but through God's own deliverance. He claims this battle to be the Lord's. And then our whole story, all the excitement, it kind of culminates in verse 49. David runs, okay? If this story is not already difficult to believe, David, a young boy with no armor, no sword, and no shield, is now running at the Philistine. And then he reaches into his bag, grabs a stone, he puts it in his sling, and he slings it at the giants. And the rock hits Goliath in the forehead. He falls face down in the dirt, David stands over Goliath. He picks up the giant sword. He finishes the job. Now, what are we to make of this story? Like, what does this story tell us? There's a lot of historical stuff. There's some interesting stuff, right? It tells us how Israel wins this battle. We learn that because all the Israelites, I don't know if they were covering their eyes or what when they saw this happening, but hey, whoa, this is okay, let's do this. And they run and, and the, the Philistines, they scatter and, and they capture some of them and they continue their pursuit of this army. We learn that. We, we learn about David's popularity, right? That's a, a growing theme throughout this story. We learn that now David, uh, the, you gotta think that the rest of Israel, and we, we learn later on, they're extremely grateful. He's the victor here. He's the reason why this happens. We see a leadership shift. We see this in this story as well where now uh, I think there's probably some grumbling going on in the army, a lack of confidence in Saul's leadership, but now they're starting to turn towards David. David gets a, a role of prominence in this army now because of his victory over Goliath. And we begin to see the beginning of, of uh, Saul's jealousy. We're going to pick up that theme next week, where we see that, that now Saul, while certainly grateful for what David has done, he begins to be quite anxious about his own status as leader, and he's jealous of now David's ranking power. All that stuff is significant in some way. But what difference does this story make in your life? Now, we can learn a lot from this story, as I've mentioned, but I think the central message in this story is how to approach a giant. Consider how much time is spent describing Goliath. Now, we can only guess how many men are in the Philistine army, the Israelite army. We don't know if it's Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, 45. I mean, we can guess about that. But how significant is it that we're told that the iron point on Goliath's spear weighs 15 pounds? This should tell us something about the point of this story. 
So should the fact that many times throughout the story, we're told that Israel's army, including the king himself, is fearful, paralyzed with fear. Best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell released a book this past fall called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. I'm guessing some of you have read it. Many of you have probably heard of it. Now, he raises a couple of points in this book that forced me to reread chapter 17 of 1 Samuel in a lot more detail than I ever had before. The key difference between Saul and David in this story is that they see things differently. And he suggests that, that Saul doubts David's chances against Goliath because of what he sees. David is small and young. Goliath is big and experienced. The Vegas odds are not good for a small and young warrior when the game is close combat. Just not very good odds. But according to Gladwell, this is Saul's first mistake. He assumes that David will fight by the, by the traditional rules of warfare. He assumes he'll put on the armor and he'll go and he'll face this giant. But David doesn't fight this way, does he? Instead of playing to the giant's strengths, David plays to his own strengths. He ditches the sword, he gets rid of the armor, he grabs the staff and the sling that he is familiar with, and then he looks to the Lord for his own deliverance. Saul's second mistake is also made by the rest of the army. They think they know who Goliath is. They look at him, but they don't really see him. Maybe it's because they're looking at him from across the ridge and they don't really gain a sense of how skilled or how big or how afraid of him they should actually be. Maybe it's because this feeling of dread and doom has encompassed the Israelite army and they've been waiting and scared for so long that they don't really get a good grasp of who Goliath is. Maybe it's because it's always easier to make assumptions in life than it is to ask a thoughtful question. They, seem to, they think that they see an unbeatable champion, but Goliath isn't actually what they think he is. Gladwell's book is built upon this principle. He says this in his opening pages. Giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that appear to give them strength are often the sources of great weakness. To go back to Mike Tyson's punch out, when little Mac gets into the ring, he looks weak and Iron Mike Tyson looks powerful. But giants aren't always what they seem. You can beat Mike Tyson the same way you beat every other opponent in this game. You play to your own strengths, and you expose your opponent's weaknesses. You study the giant's pattern. You learn the rhythm, and then you turn his disadvantages into your own advantages. When you do this, you are actually no longer the underdog, just like David really isn't the underdog in this story. When you consider his tactics. Gladwell suggests that Goliath has a number of weaknesses that are masked by his strengths. Yes, he's tall. Yes, he's loaded with armor. Yes, he has lots of different weapons, but this also makes him slow. He's an experienced champion, true, but for some strange reason, he has a shield bearer with him. And not only with him, but going out in front of him. Maybe this is a sign that Goliath has a vision problem. Now, I don't know if Gladwell's theories are right, but every giant does have a weakness. Giants aren't always what they seem. To use another video game reference, consider the classic Nintendo game of Mario Brothers. Every villain, every bad guy in that game has a weakness. 
Sometimes their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. Bowser, the villain that's up there on the screen, he can crush Mario with his jumps, but he can also fall through a brick floor if Mario plays him right. Now, David is only an underdog by our perceptions, and he isn't the only one that we misjudge. We often misjudge our troubles. We often don't see our troubles for what they really are. And fear has a way of making giants bigger than they really are. This is true for Saul, and it's true for the Israelite army, and I think it's true for us too. Debt is scary. Financial debt can be overwhelming and frightening. So is the moment when you realize that you actually don't have any friends. The thought of not having a close companion or someone that you can trust or confide in is an overwhelming thought. Cancer can paralyze us with anxiety and worry. And giants like these have a way of growing bigger and bigger and bigger when we feed them our fear. But how often do we misread these giants? How often do we do do we choose to do what David does in this story? To call upon the name of the Lord and then walk into the valley to face them. How often do we think that we only have an underdog's chance of succeeding? Because giants aren't always what they seem. And it takes getting a bit closer to your giant to learn this for yourself. The Bible is full of underdog stories and none is greater than the story of Jesus. He walked right into the trap that was set for him. He was surrounded by trouble. Death was lurking by his side. And he could have chosen a different path. He could have chosen not to enter that valley. But instead, he walked right into the valley where death was waiting for him. And then he defeated the biggest giant of all. And because Jesus defeated death through his resurrection, you and I can be delivered too. This is why we don't lose hope. This is why we can approach any giant. If Jesus is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus is with us, what can a giant really do to us? Besides, giants aren't always what they seem. We're going to celebrate communion this morning as a reminder that Jesus is with us. And then when Jesus is with us, no matter the size of the giant or our perceptions of that giant, he will deliver us. It may not always be over our trouble. It might be through our trouble, but he is always faithful to us. And we know that ultimately he will deliver us through our own resurrection someday. Our communion tables are, are open to everyone who has made a decision to follow Jesus and who is in right relationship with him. And you can go to the tables whenever you feel ready, whenever you feel led to take the bread and the cup. You can do that on your own. We have servers at the communion table that will be uh, serving the elements for you. We also have people that are available to pray with you. They'll listen to how this story has moved you to what the Spirit may have been saying to you, and they will certainly be available to pray with you as well if you would like to be prayed for. So as we contemplate God's words to us this morning, our band is going to lead us through several songs that speak of the Lord's strength and of his deliverance. So let's pause and pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your gospel.
that no matter what we face, you have promised that you are with us. That no matter what obstacle or fear that we are facing right now, you have promised to be by our side. And that you have told us that we can call on the name of the Lord and we will be saved. And so God, I want to pray against the fear and the anxiety that so many of us have. And I pray, God, that even though we may be facing insurmountable odds, I pray that we would have the hope and the peace that comes through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that we would rely on your strengths to equip us and to sustain us. And God, I pray that this would give us an overwhelming amount of hope and joy, that we know that we can enter into the valley with you at our side and that you are able and that you will sustain us and that you will deliver us. And Jesus, we give you glory and honor and we give you thanks, Lord, because you are victorious over death. We remember the sacrifice that you made knowing that we could not have done this ourselves. And so we give you all honor and praise this morning, Lord, because you are able. Amen.